Hello, I'm Ian Rodwell, and welcome to the latest episode of the Linklater's Ideas Foundry, where we talk about and try to unpick the art of working together in the 21st century organisation. And as this is our festive celebration, we thought you all deserved an extra special seasonal guest. Now, one thing I've learned about this guest over the years is that he loves a good book. It's not unusual to go into someone's office and see a few strategically placed business books arrayed thoughtfully on the shelves. But this guest has a veritable library, with every volume well-thumbed, read and digested. So fittingly, books are what I'm going to talk about today with Paul Lewis, our Linklater's managing partner. So Paul, uh, welcome to the Ideas Foundry. Hello, Ian. I am so pleased to be here. This is the highlight of my, uh, I was supposed to say week, but probably a year. <laughs> <laughs> well, look, we thought we'd use this episode to, to riff off and pay tribute to, uh, to a UK radio classic, Desert Island Discs. But our version is slightly different. Uh, so, Paul, imagine you're travelling to one of our Linklater's offices. It's a few days before Christmas and then the snow begins to fall, a bit like London today. It looks like you're going to be trapped in your hotel for a day or two, but luckily you have six of your favourite business books, plus something a little less businessy, packed away in your bag. So what we want to know is what are those six books? But I guess my first question is, was it an easy choice, narrowing it down to just six? I think the, the easy answer to that is no. Uh, it was a very difficult choice when you, when you sit there and try and work out what are the six books that you would have with you on that long trip? What are the ones that most resonate, that have most meaning, uh, that show you off as being clever? Obviously, you know, there's all those sorts of things that go through your mind when you're choosing them. But I've narrowed it down, I think, to, uh, to books that meant something to me, hopefully will mean something to others, and I think have some learning within them. So look, what is your first choice and why? So I am going to open with the book that I described to you, Ian, as in superhero type terms, something of a origin story book. So it's a book called All That Glitters, and it's The Fall of Bearings. Uh, it's a book from, I suppose, the mid-97, I think it was published, and it talked about the fall of uh, the veritable bank Bearing Brothers & Co. in 1995, brought down by... Uh, the beautifully uh, titled Rogue Trader that was someone called Nick Leeson. Now, uh, in, in a world where Lehman's itself is becoming history for many, the, the fall of a bank, whatever, a good 10, 12, 13 years before that, of bearings, uh, is probably vanished from the memory of uh, almost everyone. But at the time, it was seismic, and it occupied the financial press when I was at university, and was just fascinating as an insight into the world of high finance. Okay. And I think you mentioned that it, it sort of sparked your, your interest in derivatives, among other things. Um, now, when I, I came across derivatives doing my MBA, it kind of fried my brain. Um, so, so what was it that sort of captured your youthful imagination? Yes, I don't think this, um, this podcast is going to show me off in the, the most cool uh, light, I think, yeah, a geeky interest in derivatives, age 20, whatever. Uh, so, I mean, I'll step back more generally. I think the book itself, you know, the, the, the central story of it is the fall of bearings. And the fall of bearings came about by you know, the use of derivatives from this rogue trader. So the use of futures and options that were unsanctioned by the bank and broke all the bank's limits and were hidden away in this famous uh, sort of 88888 account that, uh, that no one knew about. 
but when I but the book itself was actually it did both that story, but it also did a much bigger story about the House of Bearings and their rise and what they'd done over the previous fifteen years. It wove in the story of the deregulation in the eighties, the Big Bang, talked about all sorts of financial products, and yeah, it was it was a different world. It was you know, I'm second year university when the events happened. I think I'd probably got a training contract for Linklaters by the time the book was published, and. I'd sat in capital markets on my vacation scheme with the great Carson Welsh, who taught me about these things called derivatives. I read this book, and it all seemed very interesting. And and I think it was just that it was just it was interesting. It seemed complicated. It seemed clever. It seemed uh, fascinating. It seemed the cutting edge of finance. And you know, I'm very conscious that in in the context of the book, derivatives clearly weren't uh, weren't used in a particularly good way. Um, but I would say that was because they were used in precisely the way the bank shouldn't have allowed them to be used, and in fact didn't allow them to be used. But I did. I remember going on holiday with this book, and this was the paperback version. And things that I read it again at the weekend, and things that now seem so straightforward, so easy. I remember sitting there trying to work out how futures worked on the Osaka Exchange versus Symex and options. And yeah, again, I, I don't claim any uh, great, great. Uh, you know, that I was a cool 21 or 22 year old, but uh, I think that was probably a low point for sitting there trying to work out how futures worked, how options worked, how that related to this and so on. And I'm, and I'm curious, Paul, if you hadn't read that book, do you think you'd have followed a, a similar path? Would it have been the world of capital markets or would some other practice area have attracted you? I don't know. I mean, it certainly, it, it clearly grabbed my attention. So it was fascinating reading it uh, again, however it is, 20 plus years later, where you realise this is, this is what I then spent the next 20 odd years doing. You know, so I came to Linklaters, I, you know, a variety of uh, seats obviously in the trading contract, qualified into capital markets, doing a mix of general capital markets work and this structured finance uh, novelty. And I read the book now and actually it talks about futures, options, repackagings, it talks about swaps, it talks about financial engineering. And all those things are things that I ended up doing then for, for 20 odd years. So. I think it definitely started me off in that direction. And there's one other book which I haven't chosen, but which will be the next step on that, which is a book called Inventing Money by Nicholas Dunbar. It's about the fall of long-term capital management a few years later. Uh, I seem to have books about the falls of things. I won't associate derivatives with falls. There you go. I think uh, derivatives are very, very uh, vital if used properly. Um, but you know, the, this book to that book to London Business School to doing a master in finance to studying derivatives and you know financial models more generally. I think there was a sort of clear path through there, and then becoming you know, someone who practiced that area of law. And, and what was fascinating reading it now again with the benefit of of hindsight, and bear in mind going into this world probably only a few years later than the events described in this book. Actually, some of the people described in there that when I read it. As a 21, 22 year old, I, I had no idea who they were, etc. Some of those actually I've worked with since then, or I encountered on deals, not necessarily the bearings team, but certainly some of those around this, because the book describes you know those who tried to save bearings, the other merchant banks that came in, and you know, I'm reading it, going, gosh, I used to work for that person. You know, I was on Secomment. That is exactly the person I worked for, or I went off to Credit Suisse Financial Products, and I remember that person there at that. So it definitely it was a it was a it was odd going back and seeing that. You read it as this callow youngster, and then you realise X number of years later, actually, you've got to know a good number of the dra dramatis personae in there. The good dramatis personae, I, I hasten to add. I like to think of a whole load of signatures, get asking them to sign their bit of the, <laughs> bit of the book. I'm not sure their personality type is such that uh, <laughs> they would be that amenable to doing that, but anyway. So you, you've, you've smuggled in a couple there, so we've got all the glitters. <laughs> uh, and I'll, I'll allow you uh, inventing, uh, inventing money as well. Uh, but where do we go from there? What's your next choice? 
So I'm not sure there's now a linear story. I think now, now I've just picked books that I think at a particular moment in time resonated or had one or two ideas that, that then stayed with me throughout my career. So I think probably where will I go from that? I will go to, and this is probably reasonably chronolog chronological, I'll go to a book called Drive by Daniel Pink. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you can ask me what it's about now, aren't you? <laughs> what is it about, Paul? <laughs> You're so predictable. Uh, so Drive is a book. Uh, so Daniel Pink's one of these Malcolm Gladwell type characters who writes books about things that uh, he finds interesting, you know, areas of psychology and so on. And, uh, and and what he does is he this book is about motivation. So what drives uh, individuals, what drives humans as groups, and how some of the things you think about what drives them may not be what actually, uh, when you've done behavioural psychology research, actually do drive them. And if I remember correctly, is it got something to do with he identified it was uh, autonomy, mastery, and purpose, that if you have those, that those are the things, the ingredients that are likely to motivate people. He, he did, he did. So, so I remember there's a few, uh, he does that sort of slightly, you know, the stylized, simplified version of some of the famous uh, experiments over the last 50, 60 years. And there were a few that really stayed with me. And the one that, that opens the book, which I think sets the scene of the whole book, and it leads on to those points you talk about, uh, was an experiment about rewards for doing a task. And I'll probably get the pure details wrong, but I'll, I'll hopefully get the essence. So, you know, classic, uh, classic testing. You've got two different groups of people, group A, group B, uh, America, um, somewhere in the 50s or 60s, I think. And the study is they give them a puzzle. I think it was a puzzle that was well known at the time. And, you know, they start off with the two groups. Neither of them get a reward, put in a room and just told, you know, yeah, there you are. You're in a room. There's a few magazines as well. You've got this time period. Do what you want. And so both groups, you know, they're a bit bored, they start playing with the puzzles and they start solving the puzzles and they count how many puzzles they solve over a certain period of time. Then the next day they come back, so back to the two groups, but this time they vary the experiment and they give one of the groups, uh, group A, they give group A a reward. So they say, right, every time you solve a puzzle, you can get a monetary reward for it. And uh, and so, you know, that group, that group um, as the science at the time would say, actually, you know, solves quite a quite a good number of of the puzzles, and the other group just does pretty similar to what it did the day before. Solves pretty much the same. So the group that's got the incentive, that's got the reward, actually solves a few more puzzles than the group that didn't have the reward. And so far, that's the logical view of you know what drives behaviour is some sort of reward or punishment type motivation. But then the the insight comes, and lots of different experiments have explored different aspects of this. On day three, where actually they come back, both groups, and they say, "Yep, yeah, we've run out of money." Uh, so actually the group that was getting the reward, you're not getting the reward anymore. Uh, and the group that obviously didn't get the reward uh, in the first place, you know, they're not there. So they put them back in the room. You can probably see where this is going. And, uh, you know, another same amount of time to do the puzzles. And now what came through was the fact that the group that had never got the reward, they just did the same as they'd done the previous two days. They engaged themselves by playing with the puzzles. They found the puzzles interesting. The group that yesterday had been given a reward for it, now they weren't getting the reward. They they just didn't do it. They didn't want to solve the puzzles anymore. And the 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 insight that the the researchers got from that was you know this idea of intrinsic motivation and that intrinsic motivation is damaged when you start putting reward into the mix. So a task that people thought was a task that uh, that was going to get them some money. Actually, when you, when you take the money away, people see it as work. They stop doing it because you're not paying me now for the work that I was doing. Whereas the other group who saw it as just you know, 
you know, you know, playing a puzzle in your spare time, actually they carried on doing it because it was play. And, uh, and I just thought that was fascinating. And then Daniel Pink goes on, and this is where it uh, you know, sort of has some obvious crossovers with places like law firms, goes on to talk about, okay, so how do comp systems then influence what people, what people get? And, uh, and, and yeah, he comes on later in the book to lawyers. Anyway, let me pause there, Ian, and see if you want to jump in. Any questions on that? Well, it, it, it's, really, it, it's really interesting because I, I had an example of this. We were, doing, we were doing a workshop and it was using some of the, uh, uh, the jazz students from the, the Guildhall uh, ne next door. And it was on collaboration and it was essentially we'd give them tasks and we'd observe how they did them. And what we did is we, we basically just gave them the, the lead sheet for a nursery rhyme, yeah? just the notes for the nursery rhyme. And we asked them just to play those, the notes. So here you've got, you've got these top jazz students playing such a simple tune and they played it. And I asked people to, to reflect back what they saw and they said, well, they look really bored. You know, they, they look disinterested and all the rest of it. What we then did is said, okay, now do it, but amaze us. And they came to life and they would just improvise, marvelous improvisations around, around a nursery rhyme. And you, you ask people, so what did you see? Well, you know, they were, you know, they were looking at each other. They were, they were smiling. They were really focused. I think the bass, the double bass player had his tongue out. He was so excited. Um, and deconstructing it, we, we used the autonomy, mastery and purpose. And it was autonomy. We'd said just, you know, do, do what you want. We haven't told you what to do. There's no restrictions. The mastery gave them an opportunity to demonstrate their skill, you know, their experience, their virtuoso um, abilities, and then purpose, we'd give them a task, amaze us. That was it. That was all they were focused on doing. And it was a, it was a, it was a real, it was a wonderful example of what called AMP just, just, coming to, just coming to life. Yeah, I think that's such a, that's such a good illustration of it. And, and there's so many different aspects. And when I then, if I try and apply that back to sort of a link later, and I must have read this in probably the early days of being a partner. And you know, you're thinking about how do law firms work? How, do, you know, how does the model work? And let's face it, we'll come back to the billable hour in, in a moment. You know, law firms have fairly traditional models that, that have people working long hours and you know, have bonus structures. So how do those work? Um, but it certainly, it, it resonated. There's, there's another example in there uh, again, two or three that really stuck. So it's known as the candle experiment. And we've probably done this, you're, you're nodding with recognition, we've probably done this in some of the internal training courses. Uh, but again, it goes to how, how rewards can change your focus. So the, the experiment is that someone on a table, you know, there's, a, there's a candle, there's a box with some tacks or drawing pins or whatever you call them um, within it, uh, and there's some matches. And the, the task is you know, find a way of fixing the candle to the wall effectively. And, and so you know, people try and play with it and they, they're trying to sort of you know, light the candle and get some wax and stick the candle to the wall with wax and so on. They're trying to find some way of using the drawing pins and pinning the candle to the wall, but the drawing pins aren't thick enough so you can't do that. People are trying different versions of that. And, uh, and the solution to the problem uh, is that you, you sort of get away from functional fixity and you realize that the box that the tacks came in, the drawing pins came in, that's actually big enough. If you pin the box to the wall and then stand the candle up in the box, actually that's, that's a way of uh, fixing the candle to the wall. And, but what they did when they threw rewards in and did sort of blind tests of groups that didn't get the rewards, groups that do get the rewards, they found that the groups that were offered the rewards were far worse 
at finding that solution because they were far more focused on, I have a reward, I have to get to the reward. Uh, it closed people's mindset down as to thinking more broadly. Uh, so then you extrapolate that through, and there's a, there's a good few pages on lawyers, and you know, I think uh, we'll come on to Martin Seligman later, but actually these pages reference Seligman. But it's talking about lawyers and so on. It talks about how, you know, does the billable hour change that that approach? And I think in some ways it's quite a facile summary or a, a lack of nuance summary. And yes, you know, Daniel Pink is a he's an author, he's not a lawyer, he hasn't spent time in the business. You know, he sort of talks about you know the billable hour, the tyranny of the billable hour, etc. Um, but you know, it's an interesting question as to when we give bonuses for people working long hours. I have to say, I've, I've always seen those as ex post facto reward rather than incentive. I'm not sure. Um, I'm not sure people do or should see them as incentives, but yeah, it's it's a it's a question for big law, any law firm model. You know, what what incentives does the billable hour have? But I think there's a practical reality, which is that until both clients and law firms stop using the billable hour, uh, the desire to move a long way away from it is is difficult to do. Let's put it that way. So anyway, I've gone I've gone a long way away from your. Uh, your point, and I'll get on to why lawyers are so unhappy later when we talk about Seligman. But uh, yeah, Drive Drive was definitely one of those books where you look at it and go, okay, that just makes me think differently about how we structure the workplace, how we should construct rewards, how we just think about how humans respond to, to different things. Fantastic. So we've, we've added Drive to the, to the pile. Um, what's going to be the next one? Well, let's then do that logical leap. So, uh, or also link actually. So, I mentioned this person in in the piece I just covered. So, next one is someone called Martin Seligman, and he he's written several books. The one I chose is called Flourish, and uh, and this isn't a book I suspect that people would naturally associate with me. You know, Paul likes his numbers and his maths and his derivatives and whatever. Um, but but Flourish is uh, well. So, just about so Seligman is is famous as a he is known as the father of the positive psychology movement. And this is a movement that focuses on, you know, on positivity, how to get to a point where you are positive and so on. And, and, and what he does, and actually probably the biggest reason the book made an impact was, you know, at the time Salingman was doing it in particular, a lot of positive psychology, it was seen as a bit woo-woo. You know, it was sort of a bit new, new, new age, a bit of sort of crystals and whatever. Um, not to denigrate crystals or whatever, but, you know, it was seen as being somewhat, um, somewhat, Non, non, sort of tough, non-business, non, you know, non, sort of what hard-charging organisations did, and and one of the things that really resonated with the book, and he he talks about it in all his books actually, but was the fact that he got engaged by the U.S. military, who liked his ideas, and he was about creating resilience, about creating positive psychology. And they looked at it and said, okay, we have this huge fighting force. We they suffer from stress. They're in stressful situations. They have PTSD when they leave the 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 army. George Casey, the famous leader of the U.S. Army, had looked at this and said, "I want to make the U.S. military into uh, a, a the most effective machine in the world." But and actually, machine is probably the wrong word there. But he's like, "I want to embrace these ideas of Seligman. They they are you know, they're peer reviewed. He's a you know, he's a well respected psychologist. He's not someone coming from left field. So we want to embrace those." And so they put into the army is still there. And Seligman has a few of his sort of disciples became the people who ran it. You know, a whole range of different measures around trying to promote positive psychology in the army, and he had a whole lot of different models as to, to how to do that. I mean, I, I find it a really liberating um, approach because what struck me when I first came across it was that it sort of got you away from focusing on the things that you don't do so well. 
to focus on. So what do you do well? And how can you how can you maximize how can you maximize that? And I think at the time there were lots of references to to David Beckham and saying, well, okay, he's not the most mobile of players, but he doesn't try, you know, he accepts that. But what he's really good at is sort of dead ball, uh, dead ball situations. So he would just go out and practice and practice his free kicks. Um, he doesn't need to be the speediest player in the world. But so often we get fixated on the things that, you know, we can't naturally do well and we try and uh, we try and improve those. Yeah, I remember going to a lecture here. I can't remember who the speaker was now, but I remember the, the content. It was around exactly that point. And the point was, we spend so much time as organisations trying to get people on the things that they are two out of tens on up to say a four out of ten rather than taking the people who are at a seven out of ten or something and getting them to be ten out of ten on that which again resonates with that aspect you have to have to have a pretty good uh, a good cross-sectional ability on most things to, to, to do the job here I mean the, the other thing that saving them became well known for, certainly well known in legal circles and he alludes to this in Flourish I think it's actually covered more in one of his other books um, but was this year, he wrote this article and then he expanded on it in one of the books, which was titled, Why Are Lawyers So Unhappy? And I've referenced this in so many training sessions. Um, and what Sagan did, so he, he studied the correlation between positivity, you know, positive psychology and success. And he looked at a load of businesses and uh, he looked at um, degree subjects, effectively, or sort of you know, college subjects. What he found was in most businesses and in most subjects, there was a massive correlation between um, having a very positive outlook on life and your success in, in business. And, but one of the main outliers, in fact, probably the biggest outlier, was lawyers and, and law as an industry, I suppose, but in particular lawyers and did a study on college, uh, college results. And, and what he said was, look, actually, it's really interesting because in most jobs or in most professions or in most courses, positive psychology is, is a predictor of success, whereas it's the inverse for lawyers. Actually, lawyers, the, those who make better lawyers, tend to have a more negative and more pessimistic outlook. And his thesis, and I suppose he has to you know, explain this to some degree, his thesis was a number of different angles. So one was, and probably his primary one, was that the, the thing that makes you a good lawyer is the ability to spot all the things that can go wrong and to worry about things and to agonize over them and to see the downsides. So, so you know, it's ironic, uh, maybe a, maybe causation, but you know, the thing that makes you a good lawyer is predisposed to make you probably a slightly less positive or happy individual. And and he said, you know, the challenge with that is it's not so much then in the day job, although there's issues to do with that as well, which we'll come back to, but actually it's the fact that you know you you then take that into everything else. So yeah, when you say into management or leading people or your home life, actually, you know, you're taking the, the the thing that is your negative outlook into those things as well, where it doesn't make you good at that. In fact, it makes you bad at that. And he then says, and then on top of that, what do law firms do? They, and this goes right back around into some of your points from earlier, he says they, they do other things that are shown to be negative. So the autonomy point, where actually as a as a lawyer serving a client, your degree of autonomy can be certainly perceived to be limited. And maybe you know, he's writing from a US perspective, and and, and I, I suspect at the time uh, there is probably a truth that even more so in some of the US firms than, than maybe the non-US firms. You know, there's just cases as a junior, you just you know, have no control over you know, your time and how you spend that time. Um, and and so he talks and says, well, lawyers have no autonomy. And so you know, that was the answer to why lawyers are unhappy. And he has various suggestions, none of which I think are are overly um, overly actionable. 
as to as to how people might change that. Although I will take debate. I think um, it's a point I make to others. I think the that as a junior in a law firm, you probably are somewhat limited on your autonomy. But the more senior you get, actually, you know, you find your autonomy in in different ways. Yes, you're there, you're answerable to a client, deals have to be done, matters have to be done to tight timeframes. But actually, you do find ways of, of finding some autonomy. And, and actually, a positive of the last two or three years, COVID time, working from home, etc., is, you know, there's different ways of having that autonomy. So autonomy can be autonomy of place as well as autonomy of action. Well, I was going to say, you know, are, are there ways that we can make lawyers happy? Well, we try that in every <laughs> single day. That's why we have surveys. Other than that. That's why we have surveys. Uh, it is, uh, yeah, I think some of what was Seligman's suggestions, right? Seligman's suggestions were things like, well, you know, find the, and, and these are these are very, very, actually, these are valid suggestions and ones we will do. So, yeah, he talks about meaning, for example. So, you know, do you find meaning, or I'll go back to that, do you find intrinsic motivation in what you do? So I'll take a few different examples. So it, it, hopefully it should be reasonably apparent from this. You know, I found the stuff I was doing as a lawyer interesting. Right? I found the world of finance. I found how derivatives work, how bonds work, how you know shares work, how markets work, what the interactions is. Uh, you know, I found that interesting as a thing, and I, I wanted to understand the nuts and bolts. I wanted to dismantle things, put things together, work with brilliant clients to build new things, and so on. So probably my happiest times with you know in the practice with those moments where you're sitting with a bunch of really clever clients doing something that's never been done before that's intellectually challenging and you come out of it and you know there's, there's plaudits for you know the first of you know this new thing and and that had to me has an intrinsic reward you know it's, I just I find it interesting I'm a curious individual I find it really interesting. I think there's, there's wider aspects. So Sagan does say, you know, to find the things that interest people. Now he or he, I think, tends to start from an assumption that law is not interesting. So he sits there going, yeah, maybe people are really good at selling. So you know, get them to help out on the selling, or maybe they're really good at, um, at writing know-how. Get them to help out on writing know-how. I think focuses a bit more on the selling. Um, you know, or our pro bono work. You know, using the using our profession to help others. So he gives various suggestions as to how people can find that sort of purpose or meaning through through the other opportunities in a law firm that a law firm should give those. But I go back to that point, and I've said this to a lot of people over the years when they're looking at, you know, should I move practice or group to try and get to be a Linklater's partner? And my, and my point is, look, you know, being a Linklater's partner, it, it's a pretty tough job, right? You're going to work long hours. That's the reality. It's a high-performance job. But on the plus side, it's a fantastic job. You do get a reasonable amount of autonomy. Uh, you get pretty well paid. And uh, you work with brilliant, brilliant people. But fundamentally, you have to really enjoy and find interesting what you do because it's what you're going to be doing. And so going somewhere just to get a title or just to get more pay, etc., you have to, you're going to do this for the next 20 or 30 years. If you don't find it fascinating, if you don't find it when you get out of bed, it's like, how does that thing work? Can I fit that together? Get the buzz of doing the deal, then, then why are you doing it? And if you look at all the most successful people here, whatever area they're in, whether it's business teams or the, or the practice, you know, you can see they get a buzz out of the thing they do, whether that's doing the M&A deal, winning the, you know, winning the case, winning the arbitration, designing the fantastic computer system. I mean, you know, it, it's getting a kick from the thing you do. Yeah. Uh, it is, isn't it? It, it? That is the fundamental question we should always ask is, what is it that you enjoy? Uh, it's, it's not a you know, get away from the, the position or the title. What is the stuff that fascinates you, that puts you into that? that flow state. And it's always interesting when you ask people that question, 
and they find the thing and they start talking about it, their whole demeanor changes. They become a they become alive. You know, for some, I've had this. People say it's drafting a share purchase agreement. That is my that is the thing that I love most in the world. Um, for others, it is that creativity. It is the problem solving. You know, we've we've got this. It's never been cracked before, but we found a way through it. So. I had a, um, I was interviewing someone uh, probably a month or so ago now, and uh, I'll sort of deliberately uh, be slightly anonymizing, but and this wasn't really even on this topic, but I saw the individual had uh, he'd got some sort of finance uh, degree type background, and I started asking him questions about that just to get a sense of, you know, get, you, know you ask someone something they know about just to see how they respond to it. And he got on to, you know, the, the famous Black-Scholes formula for pricing options. I think he described it as a beautiful formula, and we got talking about the formula and again, yeah, this is a law firm interview for someone coming and doing law. So talking about the stochastic calculus of a Black-Scholes formula is not going to necessarily tell me whether this person's a good lawyer or not. But what it did tell me was the passion this person can bring to it or the level of interest or focus or desire or whatever. So yeah, um, uh, as people told me afterwards, yeah, the fact that this person likes Formerly Paul is not uh, not you know, a sign of whether they would be a good lawyer or not. Uh, but you know, I think it is a good sign of whether they, you know, they are just interested, curious, have that sort of intellectual uh, hinterland to what they do. I think we have one final business book left. Um, what's that going to be? So this is uh, this is like one of those books where you know that you've got a band where you know you're recommending them to everyone else before they become famous and you know you were in at the beginning going oh my gosh I can't believe other people haven't heard of these they're going to be massive etc and then when they are massive you you're on the one hand pleased that they've got the success they deserve on the other hand they've gone from being this uh, you know quite edgy new thing that no one's heard about that you look quite good by mentioning to something that everyone has seen. So I think this book is, well, this is the book version of that. So it's a book called Quiet by an author called Susan Cain, uh, who is an ex-lawyer, actually. So um, she worked at Cleary for eight or nine years in the States. And and this has now become a pretty ubiquitous book. I think she wrote a sort of slightly slimmed down version of it, which made its way into schools. Certainly the school that both my children are at, um, they, they had sort of recommended it as part of their reading list. But, but Quiet is essentially about introversion and extroversion and, and how many people are introverts and how introverts work, essentially. And, you know, th this is a book that so many times people have said to me has, has been inspirational because they felt a little bit out of place. They felt that they, they didn't fit in. And suddenly they, they read this book and thought, okay, it's fine, yeah. As an introvert, we do great stuff. And is that why you were drawn to it? Because you sort of recognize yourself as, a, as, as more of an introvert than an extrovert? Yeah, and, and look, I've seen enough people over the time where, and I, I think I've fallen into this category where people go, you know, oh, one thing you might not know about me is I'm an introvert. And you sort of see, you know, from the outside, someone, you know, prancing around on stage or being very loud or very lively, etc. And you sort of for start realise that you just can't tell from the outside what, what what's going on on the inside. But but also I think what this book, I mean, the fundamental thing I took away from this book was this point around, you know, there are so many different types of, uh, of introversion, extroversion, that you know, there is no one paradigmatic form. and But but the thing I think Susan Cain identifies it down to is that energy point of what you get energy from and what takes energy from you. So you know, the message she, well, certainly what I read in the book was the message she said of 
you can be a brilliant leader, for example, and whether that's a team leader, you know, LinkedIn systems group leader, firmware managing partner, divisional head, whatever, you can be a great leader whilst being an introvert. Uh, and you can do all the things that extroverts will do. Just the, the reality is probably that once you've done them, you're probably feeling a bit drained. Whereas once they've done them, they're feeling like, you know, uh, top of the world and, and just suck energy, take energy from it. And, and that, you know, my daughter's generation have the, you know, I feel seen type comment. But yeah, I read the book and it was like, gosh, this bit's a bit like me. This bit's a bit like me. This bit's a bit like me. And look, people have seen me a lot on cameras or on stage, etc. Over the years, you get very comfortable doing it. You know, every now and then there's the odd piece of nerves. But in terms of that element of, you know, some of the things that Susan Cain identifies, absolutely. You know, if, if left to my own natural devices outside of the workplace, fairly solitary character. An only child, grew up in the countryside, surrounded by my books. Uh, you know, I can quite happily, there's a bit in there where she talks about someone, one of the professor in one of the schools, saying that, you know, could quite happily live, I think, you know, thousands of miles away from anyone, you know, not see people particularly, etc. I look at that, I think, yeah, I've got to be really happy, you know, wife, kids, some books, the dogs, middle of nowhere, I'd be happy as, a, as the proverbial pig in mud. Um, so yes, I definitely, it was one of those ones where you looked at it and went, this gives me, not permission, you don't need permission, but it, it was a recognition that, you know, things don't always come to those who are, you know, the most charismatic, the most extrovert, etc. And look, the, those people, you know, actually both of these, right, all these people can change the world in different ways. So if you look at a good example, you know, so I, I suspect, um, and you never know, right, because I say you don't know what goes on behind closed doors, but I'd be surprised if Charlie Jacobs turned around and said he was a deep introvert. Um, but again, right, you know, you look at, I find Charlie can succeed in an organisation, but I put myself in a different place and, and I can succeed. So, it actually seeing that, just understanding, I think it just helps you understand yourself and understand others that you're working with. Yeah, I, I, I can, I can empathise, empathise with that. So, so many people I know who are involved in in training, and you think that they are extroverts, but um, after a day's a day's training, a day's performance, uh, you can hardly get a word out. You just want to be alone um, in a darkened, darkened room. With a bit of ambient jazz playing in the background. <laughs> I may not have the ambient jazz, but yeah, I can definitely. But that's one of her examples, isn't it? You know, she has the professor, I can't remember if he's Harvard professor or not. I think he used to be a Harvard professor. But said, you know, he gets the best um, grades from his uh, from his students in terms of, you know, the you know, voted the number one professor, bounces around the stage, uh, you know, and, and then he's the one who goes off and just there's a log cabin somewhere in the middle of nowhere with his immediate family, writes his papers, listens to, in his case, I think classical music. Maybe it was jazz, actually. Um, yeah, so you know the, the, the professor they see on campus, on the stage, in the auditorium, in the lecture hall, is very different from, from the person they'd see elsewhere. I think I've got my counting wrong, because I do think you've got one left. <laughs> <laughs> I was trying to remember which one. Uh, oh, oh, this oh, is the non-business book, though, yeah, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, well, no, I was, no? I, was, I was thinking of something to do with the Chicago Bulls and the Los Angeles Oh, Lakers. gosh, yes, yes, yes. No, you, I, so I'm allowing myself um, all these are fun books in, uh, in lots of ways, but this is, I think, uh, even... Well, it's more fun, and I will see what lessons we can or can't draw from it. So, uh, so yes, yeah, so this is a book called Eleven Rings, and it is by, I suppose it's heavily ghostwritten, but anyway, it is by um, the, I think certainly at the time it was written, the most successful basketball coach in the NBA of all time, uh, someone called Phil Jackson. And um, people probably come to a wider audience now after lockdown and the global success of the, the Netflix program, The Last Dance. But Phil Jackson, just to give uh, just to give the the context, uh, so Phil Jackson was a coach of well, he was a, for a start he was a basketball player in the seventies for the New York Knicks, 
Um, he then became a coach of the Chicago Bulls uh, in the Michael Jordan era, so which ended with, I suppose, the season of the last dance. So he won six titles there uh, to two so-called three-peats, uh, the final one being the, the last one in, uh, in the last dance, which was the end of the era of that Chicago Bulls team, Michael Jordan, Scottie Pippen, Dennis Rodman. Uh, he then, after a prelude, after an interval, maybe of about a year or so, went off to you know, the other big name team, so the LA Lakers, where he did much the same thing uh, over you know, on and off the next 10, 11 years or so, where he won a further five titles with two different versions of that team. Uh, and the two sort of main figures there were Shaquille O'Neal and Kobe Bryant. Now, I'm not a huge basketball fan, so I deliberately chose a book that was for a sport that that is not, it's one I enjoy reading about. It's not one that I would say I'm particularly passionate about, but you look for lessons where you can get them. And uh, I think Phil Jackson is an interesting individual. I'll take a pause there. I was gonna say, um, I mean, how, you can t tell us something about some of the ideas that, uh, that he deployed and, and how have those ideas influenced your own leadership style? Yeah, well, so in reverse, I'll, I'll be wary of, um, of saying that they have one. I think they're interesting, though. So, so Phil Jackson was famous for being, uh, I mean, what was the one word summation probably be, so somewhat of a Zen uh, basketball coach in that he, you know, he was very interested in Zen, in meditation, in Buddhism, in, you know, sort of Chinese proverbs, etc., meaning of life, what you could draw from it, and so on. And the book is littered with those. So, you know, rather than reading uh, from the original, you can get Phil Jackson talking about how they inspired him with the team. But to me, probably the thing I, I found really interesting around it was, um, I think, Ian, we've talked before about there's another book that, that people use and we've used historically on some of the training courses called Aligning the Stars. It's a sort of good proper business book about, you know, how you manage teams of high performers and how you bring them together. You know, this is a real world version of that. And so, yeah, there's two, two or possibly three different vintages that Phil Jackson has to handle. So, yeah, he's trying to coach Chicago Bulls at a time when they've got the most legendary basketball player of all time, uh, you know, the genius that that is Michael Jordan, and and how that team works, where he's got another player, Scottie Pippen, also one of the best players of all time, but very much the support out to Michael Jordan, got the. Uh, you know, the, the incredibly difficult to handle Dennis Rodman for the last few years and those who you know, remember the time, Dennis Rodman going out with Madonna, dyeing his hair, the, the wild child, the one who'd go off on drinking sprees and you couldn't find him, etc. You know, very, very a complicated personality. And, and then in the Lakers team, you've got the Shaquille O'Neal and Kobe Bryant uh, relationship where Shaquille O'Neal was the, was the main player, Kobe Bryant was the up-and-coming player, probably... You know, by all accounts, yeah, him and, and MJ are the, the two best of all time. Kobe Bryant desperately wanting to be the main person there and chafing at having to play essentially the, the support act to Shaquille O'Neal. And it was fascinating to see how Phil Jackson handled those different dynamics. But but what was what was even more fascinating was the way in which he did it wasn't to try and impose himself. It wasn't to say, I'm the coach, you do what I say, this is why, etc. Yeah, it wasn't to treat them as children. It was to give them a lot of space. It was to give them a lot of understanding. So with Dennis Rodman, he, he would give him that understanding. He turned around to the team before he signed him and said, he's going to be different. He's going to do different things. Some of them will annoy us. He will make us a better team. That You just have to go with him. And, you know, I have to watch him. I agree with that. But he will, he will do things differently. He'll get some dispensations that you won't get, but it will make us a better team, and I want you to go with it. So I thought that was fascinating, how he handled those different dynamics of the star individuals to form a team, and a team that played as a team, 
uh, and yeah, because both of those different vintages, his big thing was, you know, there's five players on the court, there's the other players who come on, they're playing as a team, they're not reliant on the great individual. Now, I'm always attracted to, to, to learning lessons for completely different fields, so sport, culture, the military, etc. So is sport something that you like to draw ideas from, or are there other fields that inspire you? I do so. So I love sport. Um, so I will, you know, I will read sport uh, you know, books just for fun, essentially. And you know, I tell myself in some ways it's work because you, know, you might be able to learn lessons. And, and I, I think you have to be incredibly, incredibly careful trying to transport lessons across from sport into business. You know, if you go from a sport where there's a very definable goal, winning that medal, getting the title, etc., to uh, you know. If I look at the you know, link, it's five and a half thousand people versus eleven people on a pitch, or fifteen people on a pitch, or five people on a court, or whatever. But in terms of you know, we're all we're we're all we're a people business, and we're especially in the type of place this is. Um, you know, we want to be. We we think we are elite. We want to be high performers. We want to be the best. We people who strive to achieve have worked incredibly hard to get here. What got them here won't necessarily get them to to have success here. They have to go forward. So I think there are some things there that you can take from it and you can you can learn and apply. But I think you do have to be very careful on you know, the, the one-to-one type. You know, gosh, Sir Alex Ferguson can come in and tell us what to do or Phil Jackson. But you know, I think like, like with so many things, you know, your magpie, you can take different things from different places and go, maybe, maybe that uh, you know, that that's just an interesting insight. And there's one in 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 there where he just talks about leadership, as one reflects on now. Where again, it's back to the idea of you know leadership is not imposing your will on others. Leadership is giving people the space to, to 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 develop themselves. But you know, knowing that you know you're there, sort of you know keeping an eye on how it all fits together and how it's all going. And you can see some of those aspects. Where you go, yeah, I recognise that. I recognise that uh, that is a good way of doing it. And I'll fight against my uh, my sort of more authoritarian. Uh, you know, gosh, I, you know, wouldn't it be easier if I could just say we should just do this? Because uh, often I'm wrong. I had I had I had a vision pool when you were talking about the sort of the five thousand people, one of those medieval uh, kind of football matches where you have a whole <laughs> to get from village town, to village, yeah, yeah, sort of scrapping over a pig's bladder across some <laughs> kind of uh, ploughed field um, that goes on for for days. Uh, that would be uh, yes, yeah. I'm not sure quite how that would work, but yes. So look, we, we've reached the end of our, our business book selection, uh, but you do have another book that you can uh, peruse over in your snowbound hotel. And what have you chosen for that? Yeah, so I think when you originally proposed this, I was definitely in that desert island disc type mentality of if I was stuck on a desert island for the rest of eternity or certainly until some passing ships or my Robinson Crusoe-esque uh, fire, you know, what book would I, I take the most from? And so not a business book, uh, but a book I think that, that just resonates to me on my upbringing and you know the, the deep heart of what is me so so the book i would choose here which i'd probably say if i had to put you know favorite book of all time uh i, I would probably say this on any given day uh, so this is under milkwood uh play for voices by the uh, inimitable welsh poet dylan thomas died young of alcoholism uh so you know a, a lyrical hero uh in some uh, flawed hero type way somewhat older than the campaigns of this world when he died but uh, but but someone who in his writing is just in his writing is the lyricism of the country that I come from and grew up in is my home and and whenever I hear the words and the way he constructs the words and the way he sort of uses adjectives and he changes their meaning uh, I mean it's, it's I think you know, he was a genius uh, but a genius who 
who in his writing that the whole Welsh culture resonates effectively. So you mentioned when we were exchanging notes before this, you know, there's a there's a very famous BBC radio play version of this with the actor, and again, I feel my age now, but the, the, the now long dead actor, Richard Burton of Richard Burton, Elizabeth Taylor fame, reading this. And I still think there is, whenever I read this myself, I hear the Richard Burton voice in, in my head. I've seen lots of more modern versions. There's a fantastic National Theatre play, uh, well, it's a play, obviously. There's a National Theatre version of this last year with Michael Sheen, and he's a brilliant actor as well, but, but very different. But even then you watch it and it's different from the one that you grew up with. So uh, this is, there's a word in, in Welsh, which is helaith. Um, which is sort of the longing for your homeland, effectively, this feeling of a deeper yearning, longing for, for this place at the soul of you. And when I read Dylan Thomas, uh, I, uh, I get that. So I've got it in front of me, and I, I'm just going to indulge myself. I'll never get a chance to do this in, uh, in any form of proper thing, and I go more Welsh when I do this. But you know, just the beginning of this, you know, to begin at the beginning. It is spring. Moonless night in the small town, starless and Bible-black. The cobble street silent in the hunched quarters and rabbit's wood, limping invisible down to the slow black, slow black, crow black fishing boat bobbing sea. The houses are blind as moles, the moles you find tonight in the snouting velvet dingles, or blind as Captain Cat there in the muffled middle by the pump and the town clock, the shops in mourning, the welfare hall in widow's weeds, and all the people of the lulled and dumbfound town are sleeping now. Oh, that, that, that's beautiful, Paul. Um, and it's, it's the slow black, slow black, crow black. I mean, that is just quint quintessential Dylan Thomas. Ah, it's it's a, wonderful. Hey, my mother's an English teacher. She thinks Dylan Thomas is hugely overrated, but there you are. I'll disagree. I'll disagree. Well, it, it's funny. I, when I was, I, I was thinking when I was doing English literature back in the, the 1980s, you know, he, was, he wasn't spoken about. It was all about Heaney and uh, Thomas, uh, Ted Hughes and, uh, and Philip Larkin. But now he, I think he's being sort of rehabilitated. Um, yeah, and it's odd, isn't it? Right? I shouldn't yeah. go off a direction, but like, you look at Seamus Heaney, right? He's got... And similar thing, you know, yeah. blackberry picking, and that sort of the sensual aspects of it, and mm. the words that conjure the conjure the you know the sensual aspect. There's, there's huge similarities there. But I and I'll offend any Irish people listening. I think Thomas Thomas does it better. Now maybe maybe it's a little bit schoolboyish in terms of the way he uses some of the language, and maybe not as deep as he needs. But anyway, yes, yeah, I agree. And, and I think the. Um I was listening to it yesterday. It's a child's Christmas in Wales. We're, with Dylan Thomas reading it, um, which is quite, which is quite something. But, but the irony is, I don't know if you've heard the Dylan Thomas one. So Dylan Thomas's voice itself is quite. Um, yeah, he was raised in Swansea, where hmm. I grew up. He went to probably one of the the better schools in Swansea. Actually, a school my my, my father went to, uh, not at the same time. I hasten to add. Um, and but his voice is quite that sort of BBC radio hmm. pronouncers yeah. type voice when he does it. So I tend to. Um, I tend to much prefer uh, hearing uh, Richard Burton. I tell you, there's a fantastic um, last recommendation. Maybe it's actually, I'll tell you what, I'll use this as my lead into a bit of music that you Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so there's a, so Keres, Keres Matthews from Catatonia. So, you know, famous sort of indie band from the 90s. And she's, you know, Welsh, Welsh singer of that. She's gone on actually now to, to host various radio programs. She's interested in music from around the world and so on. But she did an album a few years ago, which was actually it's just on various you know, Welsh 
Welsh folk songs, but she also did one where essentially she read and then there's slight some musical interludes of a child's Christmas in Wales. Oh. So uh, that was uh, that was fantastic. But if I'll pick, I'll pick one song then from from that piece of work. Uh, I'm not sure I can claim Charles Christmas in Wales as a song, but uh, Caris Matthews singing Mavanui, uh famous Welsh hymn on uh, on her album. That's that's a that's a soulful one. I would take with me. Okay, I'm going to I'm going to check that out later. Um, and Paul, one final final question before we go. How do you find time to read all these books? Are you an especially quick quick reader? What, what's your secret? I am a quick reader, um, but I, I love reading, right? So I just I read at the end of the day to sort of shut my brain down for the day. I I like, you know, I go back to that introvert point, right? I'm happy when I get some hours myself where I just do it. So, uh, you know, I've got my other passions and so on, but I just like, I you know, happy place, like finding some time just to sit there, read a book, have a cup of tea or a glass of wine and just have a bit of a think. Paul, thank you so much for taking the time to join me today and share your favourite books. Uh, the good news is that while we've been talking, uh, the snow has stopped and you are now free to leave your hotel and return home. <laughs> I'm not going home though, I'm going to an office where I'm going to have to do some work here. But uh, <laughs> anyway, there you are, that's a good, uh, that's a, that's a, that's a good way to end it. <laughs> And thank you to everyone for joining our podcast throughout the year. That's it for 2022. But we'll be returning in January for a chat with Dr. Rob Archer, a psychologist specialising in helping organisations and individuals build resilience, improve mental health and sustain high performance. So what better way to get you motivated and energised for 2023? In the meantime, uh, best wishes and seasonal greetings to you all. (laughs) 